Welcome to The Future Strategist with James Miller. Today, my guest is economist Brian Kaplan. Brian is the author of several books, including The Case Against Education, The Myth of the Rational Voter, and Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids. Brian is an economist at George Mason University, and recently he's become an advocate for open borders. Uh, hi, Brian, and thanks for coming on my podcast. Pleasure to be here. So I think Brian and I share, we have very similar political values. We, we both have a lot of faith in the free market, and we're, we're both quite skeptical of the government. But we differ strongly on immigration. So I'm mm -hmm. much more skeptical of open immigration. And I, I, well, why don't you summarize your position, Brian? What, what would, if you could choose U.S. immigration policy, what would you choose? Well, you know all those people who claim that other people believe in open borders? Yes. Uh, I'm, am, I am a rare person who actually believes in open borders. Hillary Clinton does not believe in open borders, contrary to what some people have accused her of. Uh, but I do. So I think that the best policy would be one where anyone can take a job and any, anywhere where anyone can live where they want to live. Uh, unless, of course, they belong in jail, in which case they're in jail. So you basically would have the same policy towards the U.S. as, say, the different states have towards each right. other. Right? I can move to Idaho. If I'm in jail, right. I can't. But Idaho yeah. can't say, oh, we don't like your kind, Miller, stay out. So you would do the same thing with the entire world. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And do you think this would be better for existing U.S. citizens? Uh, yeah, overall. So and here's the main thing. Right now – most of the valuable labor on Earth is trapped in unproductive countries. So just think about how productive you would be in Haiti. Yes. Right? You wouldn't be able to do much of anything. And you know, we've got a lot of evidence that merely moving someone from one of these countries to a country like the United States enriches the world. Right? Again, it's not just that when you move people from Haiti to the U.S., the U.S. population is higher. And so U.S. GDP goes up, Haitian GDP goes down. Rather, what happens is that the combined GDP of the U.S. plus Haiti goes up and by an enormous amount because you take the Haitian who is doing almost nothing for the world economy in Haiti and bring him into the, uh, into the into, you know, bring him into the global economy. So, you know, when, when economists have estimated, you know, how much would this increase the production of the world if anyone could take a job anywhere, if talent could go to wherever it was most productive, you know, a, you know, a very standard estimate is something like doubling the production of the world. Right. So this is something where it's such an enormous increase in production. You know, the odds that you're going to have someone who actually loses out on balance is very slim. OK, so you think this could double the, the wealth of the world. That's enormous. Yeah. Now, I certainly do agree with you that if someone moves from a very poor country to the U.S., frequently they get paid a lot more. And that's probably mm -hmm. an indication that they are performing much more valuable labor. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I'm not sure if so, so you would really be OK if you knew this would result in a billion people moving to the United States, mm -hmm. most of them very low skilled. If you knew mm -hmm. that would happen, you'd still be in, say, this is, this is a good thing. Yeah. Well, so, you know, uh, it, you know, it depends on the time frame. If a billion people arrive tomorrow, it will be disaster, mm -hmm. but a billion people aren't going to arrive tomorrow where there's, you know, there's a lot of evidence on how these migrations actually happen. And the usual pattern is that it snowballs. So when you first open a border, you get a moderate amount of immigration and then it grows and grows and grows and grows. You know, the best example we have of this is Puerto Rico. So in 1902, the Supreme Court established open borders with Puerto Rico. There's a famous case, which we can go into. Mm -hmm. And the number of Puerto Ricans who came the first decade after the border was open was just a few thousand. But after that, you know, tens to tens of thousands and finally hundreds of thousands. Now most Puerto Ricans live here. And, you know, I say this has been a tremendous gain. But, you know, of course, like this fear that they will all show up overnight 
you know, that could indeed be a disaster. I just don't think that's a reasonable scenario. Okay. You don't think like yeah. NGOs would go to war zones, would right now go to Yemen? Someone like George Soros mm -hmm. would say, all right, anyone from Yemen wants to move to the United States, we'll transport you. And the, the people fighting in Yemen are like, yes, anyone who wants to leave is fine. We could get millions of Yemenis arriving very quickly. Uh, so millions. Millions, of course, are not are not a billion. Yes. But so, yeah, right. Just from yeah, Yemen. Yeah. So, yeah. But, you know, as, as for like, you know, people in war zones coming here, that's one of the main arguments for open borders is right now people in war zones get slaughtered. Wouldn't it be great if they could just move to another country where they can survive? Mm -hmm. you, know, you probably know about the story of the voyage of St. Louis. You know, this is this boat of Jewish refugees mm -hmm. that tries to get into the U.S. Uh, in the you know, late 30s. I'm not sure if it's 1940 anyway. Like, but uh, you know, gets turned away by the U.S. and most of the people go back and die. Right. Yeah. And I think it would have been better if they've been told, yeah, you're welcome to be here. Right. And the fact that you are coming from war zone is a reason to let you in because it's bad when people get slaughtered just because they happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I certainly think it would be a lot better for the people in the war zone to come here. But what about when you combine open borders with our welfare state? Right. So that is a great question. And it's one where people have looked at the numbers very closely. So, I mean, the important thing to remember is that, you know, for any individual, they can be a net fiscal positive or a net fiscal negative. So you need to look at the cost of the services that they use and compare that to the, to the taxes that they pay. Of course, if you let people in who are going to use a lot more services than they pay in taxes, that is going to be a burden on natives. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, if you let people in who are going to pay more in taxes than they use in services, then it's going to be the opposite. It's going to be a benefit for natives. Uh, now, there, you know, there is an assumption, you know, which uh, has some basis, in fact, which is that if you let poor people in, they will be net tax consumers. So they will, they will, you know, the, like they will use more services they pay in taxes. Uh, but there are several important factors that cut against this. So one of them is that a lot of government services are what economists call non-rival. That means the cost does not depend upon the population. So, for example, national defense, whatever your views on defense policy if we had a baby boom, no one would say, let's get more nuclear weapons to defend the babies, right? Because you can right. defend the number that you can defend a much larger number of babies with exactly the same arsenal that you have right now, right? Or just the national debt, right? You know, whenever there's a secession and uh, that's being discussed, people always want to know, well, how will the debt be divided? And if you were, say, a Scottish secessionist, you might have the answer of, well, what does the debt say Scotland on it? Let's Scotland's not paying any of it. And if Scotland can get that, you'll be fantastic for them because they would get to start debt free shoving all the debt over onto the current inhabitant or the remaining inhabitants of the United Kingdom. So similarly, like immigration is basically secession in reverse where you bring people from another country in and they're no longer paying taxes on the, the national debt of their country of birth. They're paying it on their country of arrival. And then, of course, you know, another key fact is that one of the very basic, biggest expenses for people is education. And if you get an adult immigrant, then their home country is already paid for most or all their education. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you think about a family of three natives, how many people are U.S. taxpayers on the hook for the education of? It's three. Family of two immigrant parents and one child, then it's only one, right? So these are all things that tip the scales the other way. Uh, now, well, there is a, uh, you know, a very detailed estimate done by the National Academy of Sciences that came out, I believe, last year. And, you know, the punchline is, you know, the average immigrant right now to the U.S. with the welfare state is still a big fiscal positive because of all these factors. So even when you're letting in people whose earnings are modest, still the average one is more than more than pays for himself. And even if you look at high school dropouts, as long as they come as young adults, they still more than pay for themselves because that, you know, basically you skip that education cost. 
So yeah, so in principle, welfare state could be a big problem for open immigration, but it's one where you can't just do it a priori. You've got to go and really go through a bunch of boring numbers. And I have, and I say that, you know, this is really much ado about nothing. Okay, well, let, let, accepting everything you say is true. Why can't I say if, if, if my goal is to maximize the, the economy for Americans, existing American citizens, mm-hmm. why not all immigrants are net positive economically? Mm-hmm. Isn't it better, again, if your welfare function is mm-hmm. what's best for Americans, just to say, well, let's just let in the ones that are net positive, mm-hmm. and maybe that's most of the world, but it's certainly mm-hmm. not the whole world. Why isn't that a yeah. better policy? Yeah, absolutely. And that's where I would say I've got a presumption of liberty, not a presumption of maximizing the welfare of Americans. And so while my presumption is not absolute, uh, still, I would say that it's one thing to say that if we did this, it would like it would be it would be really bad. It's another thing to say we could it'd be fine, it'd be good, but we could squeeze even more out. So why not go for everything we can get? You know, what I would say there is, of course, there are a lot of Americans that are not contributing to the welfare of America. Of course, there's a lot of potential Americans. So you could say, look, you can only have a baby if we have a good proof that your baby is going to be a productive citizen. Mm-hmm. And we don't do that. Right. And I'd say the reason we don't do that is a sense that that would be a terrible wrong to do to someone and to say you can't have a baby because it doesn't seem like we can reasonably expect your kid to be a net contributor. So, you know, I would say that, you know, like that's one where it's you know, a fundamental issue of liberty. Mm-hmm. If. You could say, look, this baby's going to be the next Hitler. Then maybe, all right, that's bad enough that we'll, we will. It makes sense to go and uh, and bend the principle. But you know, but if all that it is is like you know, like we want to keep out a few people that we think would be a problem, then that's where I'd say, like, it, like you know, the right thing to do is not to be so picky. Okay, let me just go back to something. So, if mm-hmm. your goal really were to maximize the economic benefit of immigration to existing U.S. citizens, Mm -hmm. then you would no longer be in favor of open borders minus keep out the 1% horrible criminals. Yeah, well, so what I'd say is there's something much more creative you can do than keep people out, which is charge them to come in. Okay. So if all all you want to do is maximize the benefit to Americans, then you do something like what the Gulf states do, where they let in an enormous number of people. So, you know, like 85% of the population in Kuwait is Mm foreign-born, and then... They treat they they, you know, they treat they treat natives and citizens very or you know so, or excuse me you know so a native natives and immigrants extremely differently where the citizens get tons of stuff from the government and the foreigners are like extremely restricted it's basically designed to squeeze more out of them so yeah so I would say that like you know, well managed would be better for Americans I'd still be skeptical of the government's effort to do it I think they would once you give them that power they're going to use it just to for protectionist reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like if the main thing that you want, if you, like if, if your only goal is just to get as much benefit for Americans, then I'd say, well, let immigrants in, but charge them an extra 20 percentage points in taxation or charge them an admission fee or both. So you can do all those things. You know, it's still I mean, I still say that's way better than what we do right now. Yeah. So, you know, my, my, my view is like what the Gulf monarchies do, though they don't think of it in these terms. It's much more humane than what countries like the U.S. do, because. Here, like, our attitude is, well, if we don't think you're going to bring much in, we don't think you can't come. And there, it's, well, if we don't think that you're going to bring much in, then we're going to squeeze you for even more of that. But, of course, that's still better than being in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, my dissertation advisor, Gary Becker, uh, once suggested we should auction off immigration slots mm-hmm. to the U.S. That, mm-hmm. that would have the effect of keeping out most of the world, if you, you know, certainly if you set a price above 10000 
But uh, so I, actually, I don't think that would be enough. Uh, really? Ten thousand dollars for a lifetime. I mean, like a lifetime gain, or like you know, see, most people on Earth would get a bigger annual gain than ten thousand dollars. So as long right. as they can get a loan. So, I mean, I think that if you set that up the first year or two, that what you're saying might be true, but I think it wouldn't take that long for a whole system of credit to to evolve where people would go and just pay a few years worth of wages in order to get in. So, yeah, 10000 you know, like per person, I think that would be you know, like, you know, more, like, you know, more, way more than halfway to open borders. I think that's probably more like 80% open borders. I mean, you know, one, you know, one thing I would say is that I'm not someone who says, you know, like 100% you agree with me or, or we're enemies. You know, like I'm, if I can just go and turn the dial up, you know, one percentage point, that to me is is a big gain. So you know, and I don't have this extreme view because I'm trying to alienate people or say that like if you're not with me, you're against me. I have the extreme view because I think the extreme view is right. But if you don't, uh, I always want to try to bargain you up to something more. Okay. Um, are you worried about what would happen to our democracy? That most people in the world aren't big believers in democracy, liberty, freedom of speech, mm-hmm. and if we let in a lot of people from the world, will probably the percent of Americans who believe in free speech will will go down. Right, or the people percentage of people in the country anyway. Yeah, in the country. What if someone in doesn't make them citizens? Yeah. So the main thing I say here is first of all, very important to look at actual data. Mm-hmm. So, and what I'll say is, if you look at the data, you are right qualitatively. That means that. That, that people, especially in third world countries, have a more socially conservative and more economically liberal views. But in terms of, but quantitatively, the, the difference is fairly modest. And second of all, like, you know, first generation immigrants, even when they're eligible to vote, rarely do so. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and actually, especially low skilled, uh, low skilled immigrants are extremely unlikely to vote only just going over the numbers. So out of high school dropouts who are foreign born who are legally eligible to vote only about a quarter did so in the 2012 election. Mm-hmm. Right. So I mean, basically like when you show up from a third world country, you're quite apathetic about us politics. And so even if your views are pretty bad, you just don't participate. And then if you look at the assimilation of kids, that's where things look quite fine. So, uh, you know, like Alex and Rouse Cato has, has gone over the assimilation by generation, you know, like, like so, I mean, you know, again, so like, you know, the main thing to think about is just what are the kids going to be like? And that's where I'll say that you know, we see very high rates of assimilation, just like the kids of immigrants who barely, who barely speak English still end up fluent as long as they show up at an early enough age. And you know, the same for, uh, for, for most other traits. You know, if you grow up in the U.S., then you Americanize to a very large extent. Uh, I mean, I also point out that you know, you know, people often say, well, immigration today is very different from it was in 1900 during the last open borders era. And that's true. But there are many ways in which immigration today is actually much better and easier. So like in 1900, like almost no one in Sicily would speak English when they showed up. So, you know, they would be just completely out of the loop of modern civilization. They arrive at Ellis Island and all they really know is like farming with a donkey. Today, there's you know, over a billion people on Earth who are fluent in English. Uh, you know, they know they know the modern world, at least from television and the Internet. So, I mean, like, you know, right now there's far more people who are what I call pre-assimilated. They're assimilated before they even show up, never mind the assimilation of their kids. Yeah, that's a good point. They know from Hollywood what sort of what our culture's yeah. like. Yep, yeah. Would you be afraid that countries like China would dump their citizens who have high medical costs and perhaps very low IQs on the U.S.? Hmm. Uh, no, I wouldn't be worried about that at all, actually. So, I mean, if we could go, like, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, so like, you know, if they were to say that, you know, like we're going to let them, like, you know, let people in, but only if they have these problems or let people go to the U.S. only have these problems, there'd be tons of people ready to fake having those problems to get in. You know, like, you know, the 
the human smuggling cost from getting from China to the U.S. is like fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So if all you needed to do in order to get out was to say that you got a problem, uh, I think there there would be enormous numbers of very skilled and talented people who'd be eager to go and fake these problems. Well, what so, if yeah. what if China said no, no, anyone can go to America, yeah. but if you are in these certain categories, we'll mm-hmm. actually pay you money. We'll pay your yeah. family money, mm-hmm. or maybe we'll, in extreme case, we'll even kick you out of China. And we'll say, yeah. look, you got to leave. So we'll pay mm-hmm. for you to fly to America. But because you have this disease, whose lifetime costs, mm-hmm. you know, in the millions. So China yeah, actively yeah, yeah. tried to, you know, um, dump uh, their high cost citizens on us. Yeah, I mean, I would say that the number of people like that is very small compared to the number of able bodied, talented Chinese who would love to be here. So, yeah, I wouldn't be worried about it. Yeah, so you know, like you know, you say like, is that one person that we're going to go into contribute? Uh, you know, like you can always find someone where the honest answer is no, probably not too likely. But again, you need to consider the uh, like the overall situation before you start saying let's not let people let let's relax this principle of freedom. Why do you have a principle of freedom? Why is that? Is that a core value where I can't yes. really ask why you have it? It's, yes. Okay. Um, well, I mean, you see, well, you can certainly ask. Um, yeah, so I mean, like, so like, 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 out of all the most basic rules about like the, the treatment that you owe to a stranger, I would say, you know, like, you know, leave him alone is one of the most basic ones. So, I mean, it's one where, like, like when you know, when you see a movie and you see some people showing up and just sort of attacking some strangers, it's not one where you need to sit around saying, hmm, I don't know which side is in the right here. And we got a presumption, I mean, you know, a strong presumption: the people that are attacking are in the wrong, and the people that are being attacked in the right. And again, like, like the same thing. Like, there's some people where there's a law that says these people aren't allowed to get a job here. You know, like, like that's the, you know, the kind of thing where at minimum you say there should be a justification for it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like I would say, like, like all the intuitions about uh, like, like, you know, like, like you know, racism being wrong mm-hmm. or sexism being wrong, all of these really come down to a more basic point of like, you know, usually like it's it's uh, you, you should leave people alone unless they've actually unless they've actually done something, you know, you know done something, you know, done something seriously wrong. So, you know, or like or it's like religious tolerations. Like, why is it that you should go and let people practice religion different from your own? Say like it's you know it's a very basic moral principle to leave people alone unless they've actually done something you know done something violent or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so there is a book by uh, Michael Humer called The Problem of Political Authority that's been a big influence on me. But again, mm-hmm. I would say this is actually a principle that almost everyone holds, except people make an exception for their own government and then their own governments, uh, and they don't think that this is so important. But again, it's one where if you look at a story about another country and you see two sides there. You know, like, and you no longer are so worried, or you're no longer thinking about defending your own government, but just looking at it as a neutral observer. And I think this is an idea that really does make sense to most people. Okay, but yeah. um, I mean, as a late like, how would you react if someone said, "Well, like, we should only let blacks have jobs if it works to the benefit of whites," and you say, "Well, in general, it would work." Yeah, but like, what if there's a few where it wouldn't be 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 helpful for us? Then should we keep the restrictions on them? Um, know, like, how would, you, I, how would you react to that? I mean, I see that differently as is an issue of freedom. I mean, I would say it's sort of, you know, if I want to maximize, if my goal is to maximize the value of Americans and... Yeah, but we said, well, like, why is Americans their group? Why not white Americans or professors? Um, I, I think it would go very badly if you, you pick just white Americans. Well, it, would go, is, it might go badly for non-whites. It could go very well for whites, perhaps. It, you know, especially it's possible, if you say, look, it's not, yeah, it's not saying we're, that we're going to have no interaction. It's just that we're going to assess every regulation with respect to the benefits of whites. Yeah. Which might mean that almost all the regulations are bad, but then you might still save a few because these are the exceptional ones. So your moral views, are you – you don't give special – I assume you're an American citizen? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. So you don't give extra weight to the welfare of American citizens. I mean, other than, of course, your friends and family, but like a stranger in Idaho, yeah. you don't value more than a stranger in Congo. Yeah, yeah no, I you know, definitely not. Uh, but again, you don't need to have that view in order to think that open borders are a good idea. Again, so you know, so again, like you know, it's quite possible that you could say, look, we have a greater duty to give assistance to Americans than to foreigners, but we still owe to foreigners the right to live and work where they want, which is a much lower benchmark. Mm -hmm. Just like you might say, like I, I owe it to my kid to go and help him out and give him a home, even like even if he's not really measuring up, but. That doesn't mean that it would be okay for me to try to prevent one, a, a competitor with my kid in the job market from competing for that job. That's something more basic. Mm -hmm. But you, you certainly, it's okay for your, you to help your kid with an application to college mm -hmm. and your kid gets mm -hmm. in and someone else yeah. is who didn't right. have a college professor parent right. doesn't. Yeah. Very, right. Very different from intercepting the letter from the competing kids so to make the, make sure the spot's available for well, your kid. Well, sort of. I mean, they're, they're different yeah. rules and. You know, you might use connections that are, I yeah. assume you wouldn't be bothered by, well, I know the admissions person at this college because mm -hmm. they're using my social network while there's no right. way the kid from Iowa, mm -hmm. Iowa's parents do. Right. I mean, the other striking thing is that for this internal nepotism, almost everyone recognizes that there's a problem with it. Yeah. Right. Like if, you know, if there were someone who, who bribed a jury to get their, their axe murdering son off, people wouldn't say, well, I mean, he just cares about his kid more than other people. And like, we are all like that. This is one where people can, can understand the motive of the parent and yet still condemn him as a terrible person. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a reasonable reaction to that. Say, look, just because it's your kid doesn't mean that it's okay to try to get him off from her. Mm -hmm. What do you think is going to happen to uh, – what would happen to uh, low-skilled U.S. citizens under open borders? Yeah, so it depends on how low-skilled. If we're low-skilled by U.S. standards, I think they're going to do, do better because they'll be supervisors and managers of – the much lower skilled immigrants that will be coming. On the other hand, if you, if you actually imagine there's an American who has the skill set of someone from Congo, then it's going to be worse for him. Again, actually, you know, like, you know, I'd say the best evidence on who in the U.S. actually is hurt by immigration is primarily the last wave of immigrants that are hurt by immigration. Right. So if you went, when you let in more Mexicans right now, the main people that the data say actually suffer were the last, you know, the last wave of Mexican workers in the same occupations. Uh, of course, strikingly, the last wave is also one of the most favorable towards letting in another wave because they actually care about them. They, they're their friends and relatives and so on. But yeah, but in terms of, you know, like main thing to realize is that, you know, there's low skilled and low skilled. A low skilled American is someone who didn't do very well in high school, but still is fluent English, is aware of how the modern world works. Whereas like a low skilled person from Congo might be someone who you know, like really is quite unfamiliar with how things are. So and, you know, and again, there is some, you know, some very nice work done on this on, how does the percentage of immigrants change what low-skilled people in your area do? And you know, the main result is that in low-skilled areas where there's where there are very or like, you know, like in areas of the U.S. where there's very few low-skilled immigrants, in those areas you have English speakers you know, washing dishes and cleaning hotel rooms and things like that, jobs where you don't need to know any English. And on the other hand, in areas where you have a lot of of a, 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 a lot of low-skilled foreigners. In those areas, the American high school dropouts work in jobs like waiter or manager of the uh, of, uh, manager of the people cleaning the hotel rooms. So you know, again, it's one where there's a natural specialization. And right now, you know, like in areas without a lot of immigrants, we're wasting a lot of skills on overqualified a lot of jobs and on you know low-skilled jobs and overqualified people. Mm -hmm. By saying you know, like, I don't know, if you ever been to Europe and you know, like you go to a train station, you get a guy who in the U.S. would be a manager. And there he's just like a, a low-level functionary, but you're like, no, isn't it a waste that this guy is doing this job that requires so little of his talent? 
when in a well-functioning system, you'd bring in much lower skilled people than him and then he would manage them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the comparative advantage argument. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, really, I mean, I was last in Frankfurt, I, you know, like, there was the guy at the information desk and when I asked him where the train was, he like you could tell this was a very smart guy who was so <laughs> sick of hearing the same you know, stupid question a hundred times a day. And I think, man, this guy really needs some low-skilled immigrants that he could be the manager of because this guy would be good. This guy would, would really teach them, show them the ropes and acclimate them to the modern world. Like This guy would be a great trainer. Uh, but, you know, but instead, he's there doing, you know, doing this club job, which is kind of, you know, kind of sad for everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, what about the argument that there's something very special about the United States? We, we produce a mm-hmm. hugely disproportionate amount of innovation. And even though we have vast military power, we mostly use it for good. We're not trying to conquer Canada, and there's a lot more stability mm-hmm. in the world. And we really, you know, we don't know why we're like this, but if we let in a huge number of newcomers, that might change, and we might become like an ordinary country. And an ordinary country in America's position conquers Canada. Hmm. I mean, so there's, you know, there's several interesting things going on in that question. Uh, first of all, you know, like, you know, like the basic intuition seems pretty sensible to me. Although I would say that there are a lot of other first world countries that are in position to conquer countries and don't do it. And I don't think it's just because they're worried the United States would, would spank them or anything. I don't think the reason why Japan isn't going and attacking people now is that they're worried the U.S. would get mad at them. I think that you know, people in rich countries have just lost interest in that kind of thing. Oh, I, I, uh, I, yeah. I don't agree. I mean, Japan, when they had the chance, conquered as much as it could. Yeah, and... yes, yes. That, that was the Japan then. That was the Japan with the pre-modern values of the earlier period. But, I mean, yeah. like, like, you know, so like, like, Britain, like Britain, do you think Britain would, would be attacking other countries or even Germany? Would Germany be waging war on countries to grab their stuff if uh, weren't, they weren't worried about the U.S. getting uh, getting after them? I think there's uh, a very good yeah. chance, yeah. I yeah. think you, you look at what people did when they had that chance and almost no one turns mm-hmm. down the chance to conquer your neighbors. We're, I think yeah, we're well, so we're... almost almost no one before the, the emergence of the modern first world did that, but the modern first world countries are just very different. You know, but, you know, this this does, I mean this takes us far away from immigration, but I'm happy to do it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like so, I mean, I have a general theory here, which is that you know you get terrible wars when you have modern technology and pre-modern values, which is basically mm-hmm. the story of World War One and World War Two. So you know, like basically, you know, in earlier periods, you have terrible values and low value of life, but you don't have the technology to do terrible things. But after you've got a really nice standard of living. This civilizes people and they just lose interest in conquest. And the dangerous period is this interregnum period when you've got the technology for mass destruction, but you still have the you know, like the, the attitudes of the pre-modern period. But I mean, obviously that is that is a grand theory of history. But mm-hmm. again, to me, the idea the Germans would be you know, would start attacking other countries if they had like if the U.S. wouldn't discipline them makes this seems very hard to believe. But anyway, on the question of like, is the U.S. different? Uh, so, of course, the U.S. is also different in that it, it was built upon you know, centuries of borders before the, like, the last hundred years when immigration was greatly reduced. Mm-hmm. So you might think it's actually the immigration is a big part of the DNA of the U.S. I think there's something to that. The other thing is, you know, if you're concerned about the power of the U.S., one important part, part of the power is just the U.S. population. You know, mm-hmm. If the U.S. had had the amount of immigration that Canada or Australia had, the U.S. would just be a minor country and none of this stuff would be happening. Well, so, I mean, I mean, I mean, like particularly, yeah. I often think about all the Germans that would have been fighting for Germany that instead were fighting for the U.S. during World War One and Two. Think about Dwight Eisenhower, yeah. uh, you know, an American general of German ancestry, and like, yeah. what, what if uh, the Eisenhowers had stayed in Germany and then st- instead of being in the U.S.? So, you know, like I'd say, like if you were concerned about the role of the U.S., like population is a very big part of it. So, 
I mean, I'd be concerned just about the U.S. about you know, like the U.S. having a big enough population to remain in its current position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's a good point. Um, with innovation, though, what do you think? Do you think we would risk? Yeah. Being so with less innovation, innovative? what I say is, right now, there's an enormous amount of talent that is to, that is trapped in the third world, accomplishing little or nothing, and like we could get so much more innovation just by welcoming that talent into the U.S. So, you know, the, let's see, what's his name again? Oh, yeah. So there's a uh, you know, Harvard professor named Sendhil Malanathan, if you're real. He's from India. Like when he was a kid, they you know, like he lived in a village where they rode around in, in an ox cart. Mm-hmm. And, like now he's in the U.S. And like, you know, like, and like you could easily see him being stuck there in India and just contributing very little to the world economy. So, you know, like, you know, you mean it. Now I realize like most people are like, you know, and probably you are like very sympathetic to high school immigration. Although, mm-hmm. you know, like you so, like in countries that are very backward, I think there's a lot of talent that just isn't found, right? There's just talent that is completely missed. Like you're mentioning China, like, you know, there's got to be a ton of talent there that's just going to be overlooked. There are people just are going to live out in the countryside working on a farm for, their, uh, for, for the next 20 or 30 years. And if they could just move, then, you know, that talent could be really put to work for the benefit of mankind. I mean, Possibly. We don't really know what causes innovation and we don't really know what people would be capable of it. It's, it, yeah. it is kind well, of we've got an idea that like an enormous amount of innovation is being done by immigrants in the U.S. right now. And you might think that if you let in you know, way more immigrants, that would stop. But I mean, my, my general rule is if you're going to make predictions, mm-hmm. the best rule is the future will be like the past. So the yeah. U.S. Is, is currently great at taking you know kids from poor immigrants and turning them into – you know, both you know, innovators in science, technology, and business, and I don't see any reason why we couldn't do far more of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if that if that would work out, that would be fantastic. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's working. We're working out to a very large degree right now. I mean, you've, you've probably seen the numbers on share of of, uh, of major companies in Silicon Valley with an immigrant founder, uh, yeah. like the share the share of Nobels that go to immigrants, or especially if you do immigrants or children of immigrants. I mean, one thing about immigrants is often when they arrive there, it's too late in life for them to get their career on track. And so they are going and you know, driving a taxi for the rest of their lives. But their kids, on the other hand, they start off with these advantages that their parents didn't have. I, I don't have data on this, but I wonder if how many of the very uh, productive immigrants in terms of innovation, they have a grandparent who knew calculus. It wouldn't mm-hmm. surprise me if that's a high number. Yeah, you know, so, you know, I think you know, well above the base rate for their home country. Yeah, although still pretty, uh, still not too good for uh, you know for the world standard overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, you know, like you know, you're asking about whether I'm a U.S. citizen. So, you know, so my wife is an immigrant from Romania. You know, she was able to come when she was seven, mm-hmm. right? And you know, her parents, uh, you know, they they arrived as adults, and so you know, they you know, they, they struggled to go and find and find jobs as best they could uh, using the skills they had. So. My father-in-law had been a manager in electrical plant in Romania, and in the U.S., eventually he's able to work up from being a janitor to being an electrician. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you know, but you know, and then you know, my, my mother-in-law she got a bit earlier, so it was a bit easier for get her her, her uh, life on track. But again, you know, of course, my wife when she shows up when she's seven, then you know, like like you know, like almost all the opportunities that would be open to anyone else uh, in her situation are, are there. Mm-hmm. By the way, so you know, there is a you know, like a, a, a nice quantitative measure of this. So if you take a look at the kids of American high school dropouts, you know, mm. very likely to be high school dropouts themselves. Their educational achievement, achievement is way lower than that of, uh, you know, or the, than the average American. On the other hand, if you look at uh, kids, you know, immigrant, you know, children of immigrants whose uh, whose parents were high school dropouts, they're much more likely to wind up, you know, like finishing high school or college, which I think mm. is a measure of just the disadvantage that they that people face from growing up in a third world country, and and yet how 
easy it is in one generation to erase most of that disadvantage as long as the kid can start out here at a young age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that certainly seems plausible. Uh, what do you think about, though, Europe's experience with low-skilled immigrants from um, Muslim countries? Apparently, yeah. in places like Germany, very few of these immigrants you know, actually ever get jobs or are in the mainstream yeah. economy. And they yeah, haven't so, changed. Yeah, so I, so I would just say that's wrong. Why well, the real story is that they have moderately lower labor force participation rates than the native, the native population, and the really no low numbers come from refugees in the first year or two. Okay. And some of these refugees actually aren't even legally allowed to work. So you look at a population where they can't legally work, and then you say they're not working. Look at how lazy they are. So I think that there is a you know people are very quick to think of a group as not only as being like, terrible rather than you know, marginally worse. Mm-hmm. And also to think of a temporary problem as being a permanent problem. So I say, you know, overall, Europe has handled you know, low-skilled immigration less successfully than the U.S. has. Well, you know, I say, you know, there's two ways of looking at it. One is, you know, the immigrants are bad. Another one is the welfare state is bad. And, yeah, so I very much uh, am with the second view. But, you know, like if there is a problem, then at minimum you want to have reduced benefits for, you know, reduced benefits for, uh, you know, for, for the foreign born or just say, look, our system clearly is, is, you know, like is, is, is excessive and we need to figure out a way to encourage people to get into work. And in terms of assimilation, I do think that, you know, getting people into labor force is very important for assimilation. But anyway, you know, I was just, I mean, I was just back, you know, I was just, just all over Europe, uh, you know, just a, just a few weeks ago. I mean, just to see like the share of you know, immigrants that are doing jobs all over the economy, Again, like CS says, there's got to be some other ones that aren't, but it's not like you look around and you see that the immigrants are just being supported by natives. Uh, instead, you look around and you see like, you know, a, level, a level of assimilation I think would shock a lot of Americans, actually, just to see like, you know, the extent to which the kids of Muslim families are turning into regular Swedes. Right? And of course, in the, you know, like, as a news story, it's a way better news story to say there's no assimilation than to say things are proceeding reasonably well. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, in generally, in my view, is that there is just a great contrast between the view, you'll, view of the world you'll get from reading newspapers and the view you'll get from either looking at statistics or from just walking around and looking what's happening. And I say those latter two views are generally looking pretty good. But, of course, the media is based upon terrifying people and spreading doom and misery stories. Right. So, you know, like, when, you know, I mean, when, when people talk about how it's been a disaster, it's like, well, like, you know, compared to what? Right. So, uh Okay. okay. Yeah, and the media is certainly based on narrative, so yeah. you have to and, and, and negative and negativity, of course, trying yeah. to find the worst thing you can find in, in in the world, and then put it and then put the cameras uh, shine the cameras of that, right? So you know, like you know, like you know, I was just in you know Germany, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, everywhere I went, mm-hmm. I saw a large number of immigrants going, and not just. You know, like you know, like pushing a broom, doing you know, all kinds of jobs, uh, like speaking, not just. You know, Swedish or Norwegian or Danish or German, but also with quite good English too. So right? it's like like trilingual, mm-hmm. right? And you know, you know, I don't know, like best best meal that I had in Europe was at a a, you know, a, a Turkish restaurant in Frankfurt. You know, like it's mm-hmm. like wow, like like these people are really adding a lot to the lot here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what about an argument that if a lot of people from another country want to come to the United States because we're better run, why don't mm-hmm. we just go back to colonialism? Wouldn't I mean we? Why not just have yeah. the United States go and conquer that country and run right. it? Yeah, well, great, great question. First of all, I say it's a great question. It's not one where I recoil on horror or anything. Okay, well, thank I, you. <laughs> I, I say, yeah, why not? And I say, look, look, here's the real reason. You know, fire and blood. In order to do this in a modern world with modern media, you know, like you would have to go and like you know and and 
and you know commit like you know, atrocities on a massive scale, and then the media would go and sh- and show you some tor- terrible stories, and people would feel really bad about it, and it would just wind up being something like the Iraq War, where you go you know, where like you, people get really excited, you go you go there, you leave things in a shambles, and then you say, well, I guess things aren't working out, and you leave, and then it seems like things are worse than if the U.S. had done nothing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I say that you know, like. If you could have you know, peaceful colonialism where the people there are, are cool with it and you don't have to have a war over it, then yeah, then, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, again, you know, really, really the sad thing about what happened was that you know, there's an age of horrible atrocities when the Europeans are acting like savages with, with superior weaponry. Mm-hmm. And, then there's a, and then there's a gradual improvement in attitudes where Europeans realize, wow, just because someone isn't from our country doesn't mean it's okay to murder and enslave them. But then not too long after that, the uh, like, like uh, what happens is that natives who still have these pre-modern values wound, wind up you know, getting independence and taking over and then trashing the countries. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like in no way is it like, like do I have some illusions about how you know, like the you know, political views of you know, third world revolutionaries are great. Uh, I mean, I would say that you know, like, you know, they, you know, they didn't really speak for the people that they took over. It's more that they were just more energetic and played the media better. I think there were plenty of people throughout the colonial world who would have been much happier if just things stayed peaceful and they could have lived, lived, a, lived a quiet life. Mm-hmm. But uh, unfortunately, that was what happened. So, you know, you know, the, you know, so there's the initial upfront cost, and then I just don't think that first world countries have the stomach for actually doing what we required anymore. So this, you know, basically immigration give, you know, peacefully gives you all the, all the good stuff of colonialism without the bad stuff and without... The, and, and again, and without also the uh, like the problem of you know, lack lack of will to actually stick things through once once you've done it. So you know, like, like in other words, you know, like you know, so I mean, could the U.S. have greatly improved Iraq? I think the U.S. totally had the ability to do it, but it would have required the U.S. to do a, you know a thirty to fifty year commitment, mm-hmm. and would have required you know, very heavy restrictions on democracy until things calm down and improve. And, you know, the U.S. public doesn't have the patience, barely has the patience for five years, never mind 50. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's basically right. Um, I guess, f- finally, are, are you worried that uh, t- automation is going to cause, you know, widespread unemployment among, like, most Americans? And so perhaps bringing up a whole bunch of new citizens who in the next 20 years will be made obsolete by technology might turn out to be a huge burden? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not even slightly worried about that. Uh, there is an, a long history of people predicting that automation would lead to mass unemployment. They've always been wrong mm-hmm. every single time, and it's not that there have been small changes in the past. So we have automated agriculture, which provided employment to almost the entire human race for almost all of human civilization. We're down to like one percent of people are now in farming. That would have been ninety, ninety-five, ninety-nine percent for most of human history. Now, virtually no one. Mm-hmm. And yet, what do people do? Something else. There's always something else to do. Human wants are unlimited. There's always something where human beings have this comparative advantage, where uh, you know, like, like you know, you know, human beings are, you know, like you know, this. This is what human beings are best at compared to machines, and that's all you really need. So I mean, really, I, I mean, I yeah. like them. To me, the main thing that's disappointing is just how little automation that, like has happened in recent decades. So you know, like the golden age, the golden age of automation really seemed to be like 40, 1945 to nineteen seventy three. Things slow down after that. And I mean, I think it'd be great if we could get things up to a, to a rapid speed. But right now, almost all of the claims about rapid automation come from a few high profile industries like Uber mm-hmm. or, or a firm from a few high profile firms, plus people's runaway imaginations. 
but yeah, like in terms of like, like I mean, I, I wish there'd be way more automation, but if there were, I mean, the effect would just be really high living standards. It's not going to be that people are, are, are unemployed. Um, unless, of course, the proper analogy is with horses that all the you know, theories mm-hmm. of comparative advantage didn't save the horse yeah. from becoming obsolete. Yeah, horses are not so versatile. Yeah, well, they like, kind of—they are <laughs> very versatile and for you know in a medieval economy, but they're not to us. Yeah, anyway. so, yeah, like yeah, so I mean, it, it's always possible that the future will stop resembling the past, but mm. whenever someone very confidently predicts that, that's where I'll, that's where I'll say like, you have no way of knowing that. Like the opposite is the reasonable thing to think, and again, I mean, like honestly, like there 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 are things where I think they're so crazy that. Trying to argue people out of them seems kind of futile. And those are when I just like to bet people and say, look, let's, let's stop arguing. Let's have a bet. So like if U.S. unemployment goes above a certain level and stays there for a certain amount of time, then you win the bet. Otherwise, I win. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like during the last Great Recession, my colleague Tyler Cowan was predicting a permanent change to high unemployment in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I just said, look, like, why? Like I don't see any reason why things won't go back down. So I mean, he, uh, he actually gave me 10 to 1 odds that the U.S. unemployment rate would stay above 5%. For 20 years. Whoa. And it took him only about three years to lose. Uh, <laughs> well, now, unfortunately, unfortunately, I couldn't get him up to decent stakes, so he just bet me my dollar against his ten dollars. Oh well. But but you know you know to me the important thing is the bragging rights. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like like you were really wrong. And like yeah. like and like and it wasn't that I had some great insight. I just said like I don't see why the future won't just resemble the past. And of course it did resemble the past. It's the way, like it's the normal thing. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, um, Brian, I greatly appreciate you coming on my yeah, podcast, sure. and you you do a, a very good job defending an argument that, uh, like, as you said, few other people actually believe in, but you clearly do. Yeah. So I'm yeah, happy to do it, and um, I mean, I'm I'm always happy to have a pleasant <laughs> a a a a, a, ple- a a pleasant oppositional conversation on this. It's usually pretty hard to do. Yeah. People just get so agitated about this. I mean, like to me, like a step one for any issue is just calm down. Like everyone just needs to get really mellow in order for us to make any progress. Yeah, I agree. People seem to interpret them being upset and offended as evidence that they're right, and that mm-hmm. means they should get more. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I think so much of it is if you're just trying to intimidate other people into pretending mm-hmm. to agree with you. So, uh, like, you know, like I don't go for that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, Brian, that was a very interesting discussion on immigration. Um, but why don't we turn to a topic where we agree a lot more, and that's on education. Mm-hmm. So you wrote this excellent book, The Case Against Education in which you, you frankly attack both of our professions as college professors. We're, we're, <laughs> the book is right. What we're doing is really not so noble and fantastic. Mm-hmm. What, what is your basic thesis on education? Yeah, well, my, my, my basic story is that the main, is, you know, while it is really true that education does raise income, so you know, like going to college, there's a lot of evidence that if you go to college, that will cause your income to be a lot higher. But I say the main reason is not that you're learning useful job skills in school. It's not that schools or a college is like a, a, fa- a, a, a skill factory where we are actually training you to do the jobs of the future. Instead, I say the main reason why education pays so much is that you are convincing employers that you're a good employee. Right? You're, it's persuasive. You say, look, if I could go and do this program and get these grades, then I must be worthy. I'm trainable. And so you should hire me and then give me the actual training. In economics, we have a, a technical term for this. We call it signaling. It's this called the signaling model of education. And I say that you know, this explains not all, but a great deal of what's going on in school is not that you are learning useful stuff, but rather that you are jumping through hoops in order to persuade employers to treat you more favorably. And again, it's all sustainable because on average, people who do well in school are better workers, actually, and they are more trainable. But, and here is the kicker, 
from the point of view of society, from the point of view of taxpayers, this is not productive because if you get more, if you just get everyone to do an extra degree, then employers just jack up their expectations for how much education you need to be worthy of an interview. And I see this as basically what has happened to the U.S. economy over the last 70 years is that there's been a tremendous rise of the amount of education you need to get a job, even if the job itself is stagnant. Mm-hmm. So like being a waiter is hard to see how being a waiter is more cognitively demanding than it was 50 or 70 years ago. In fact, in some ways, it's easier because now you don't have to do math to add up your customers' bills, which you used to do in the past. And yet now there are many uh, jobs at nice restaurants where they favor or actually require a college degree just to go and be a waiter there. What is so going we, to college signal? Ah, so you know, I say you know, it's a whole package of traits. So partly it just shows you're smart, but it's not. There's a lot more to it than that because we really were just that. We just give someone a quick standardized test and establish how smart they are. I say you know, is it like smart but also hardworking? So you know, like you probably know someone that is really smart but hasn't done well in school, and one of the main reasons is they're so lazy. Right, they just don't do the work. And then I also say that it's a, a signal of conformity, just that you're willing to bend the knee to social expectations, you're willing to comply with the rules of our society. So I say you put that together, and like someone who gets a degree, you have this package. Uh, you know, at least you know it is a convincing way of saying I've got a package. I'm I'm a smart, hardworking, conformist person. So hire me. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that every single college graduate has those traits. There are people who slip through the cracks, so they find a really easy major to do or whatever. But the main thing to remember is employers are not looking for absolute proof. They're just looking for an easy way of picking out the people they should spend their time interviewing and uh, evaluating from people where they don't want to throw, don't even want to go and spend the time to look at them. Mm-hmm. I, I got an interesting piece of evidence in favor of your thesis. I, I did advising for freshmen this year. Uh-huh. <laughs> and one of the articles that Smith College wanted the advisors to read was something saying that, you know, most employers don't care what you major in. <laughs> Amazing. Like, well, wait, okay, so what we actually teach isn't that relevant. We have a completely open curriculum at Smith College. You have to take one writing intensive course and then pick a major. But no, what you major in doesn't matter to employers. Well, what what's going on here? With Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's just a lie. Of course, like, like it matters a lot, and you can see this. There are high-earning majors like engineering, computer science, and there's low-earning majors like fine arts and education. This is one of the most predictable things in the economics of education is – some majors pay a lot more than others. Why would so, that be true under a signaling yeah. theory, though? Yeah. Why can't oh, you... well, well, it's real easy. Some majors are much more persuasive. Like you meet someone who's a fine arts major, do you say, oh, my God, there's there, that guy is a perfect worker bee? Mm-hmm. I don't. On the other hand, you meet someone who, like, who's got an engineering degree or a math or physics or something like that. That's like, all right, even if this job doesn't really use any physics, if you could get A's in physics, I think you can go and work at our finance firm. I think you'll, you'll, you'll be able to figure it out. So, yeah, I mean, like, you know, so like, like, I mean, here, like, you know, so I'm an economics professor. I don't, you know, are you an economics? Or do you, don't uh, uh, yeah, I'm an economics too. Yeah, yeah. So to me, just making a list of what do I teach my students that they're actually going to use in a non-academic job. And I'll say, all right, so like basic statistics and present value formula. But like, you know, most of the stuff that I teach is very academic. I don't see them using it uh, like in an actual job unless they become professors. But but, but the econ degree is, is close to the highest paid major of all. It's, it's just after... You know, electrical engineering, computer science, finance, and then usually econ is fourth, and it's a close fourth, actually. But I think what's going on is that people think of econ as hard, and for a mm-hmm. lot of people it is hard. And then on top of it, it also shows that you're interested in money. Yeah. So it's like, I did something hard, and I'm interested in money. There's a lot of businesses that are like, okay, yeah, I think we can work with that. Whereas, you know, like the business major pays a lot worse than econ. 
You know, you might think they're learning something a little more practical, although that's debatable. But anyway, the main thing, the business major is easy. People think of it, yeah, well, like, you're like, why are you doing that? It's a pretty easy major. You're just trying to weasel out. So, and if you're trying to weasel out, then I'm not that interested in hiring you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also people who major in econ compared to most other majors are, are more interested in making money. So they're more likely to take mm-hmm. those career opportunities. Yeah. But how does this affect you as a college professor and believing in the signaling theory? Does it affect what you teach and how you teach and what you care about? So, I mean, trivially, I teach the signaling model, and okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> since I believe in it, I teach that. In terms of that, otherwise, I mean, I, I mean, like the main thing is, you know, like I, I think I do pretty much what I would do otherwise, but I don't do it with any guilt about depriving students of the necessary preparation for their future, because like, like almost no one is giving them this preparation. But fortunately, they don't really need it, <laughs> because we I mean really, really what you know the, the, the bachelor's degree is is it's a passport to the real training. Mm-hmm. The passport to the real training. This is what convinces employers that you're worthy actually training how to do something practical. Uh, so, again, the main effect for me, I would say, is and I don't have the same self-righteousness of most professors about how what, what we do is super important and we're entitled to first dibs on the budget and anyone who wants to cut our funding is terrible. And I, and honestly, like I'm, I'm, I like I don't even like wouldn't like if someone in general were saying I want to do some educational philanthropy, my reaction would be no, 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 we're orphans. Do something that, that will really help people, not not something that's just fueling this rat race here. Mm-hmm. So you know, obviously, if someone wants to help me, then I'll say, well, I'm different because I'm actually teaching something that will improve <laughs> the world, right? If people believe me, things will get better. But you know, partly, partly it's tongue in cheek. But you know, like, you know, so like, do I feel bad about what I'm doing or anything like that? I mean, I do have the consolation that of being a whistleblower and saying mm-hmm. that at least I'm trying to alert taxpayers to the fact that money is not being well spent. And again, if I weren't a professor, would people even believe me? I think, I think a big part of the success of my book is that I first had to signal that I was trustworthy by becoming a tenured professor. Yeah. Because if I were to some guy in his basement saying that education didn't teach useful stuff very, very often, people would say, yeah, it's just some loser in his basement. Of course, he needs to come up with some story, but... You know, like I all say, like you know, being a professor is a dream job for me. I love it. I'm super happy. I've got no complaints against the system, other than that other people are getting ripped off. Okay, but, but you know, you you're a strong believer in the free market, and why hasn't the market corrected this problem? Why aren't there a simple way for an 18 year old to signal, I'm a smart, diligent conformist. Hire me. Don't make me waste four years and a lot of money going to college. Well, here's the first thing. There are about a trillion dollars of subsidies on the, uh, that favor the status quo being paid every year. Okay. So to me, saying, like, why isn't the free market fix this is a lot like saying, why isn't the free market reduce the number of football stadiums down to an efficient level? It's like, yeah, because the government is pouring money. A fire hose of money is going and distorting market incentives. So I'd say if you were to go and heavily cut this funding, then I think that we would see big shifts. So, you know, like all these subsidies make an enormous difference. It, it, it makes – the standard method, uh, you know, much cheaper than otherwise would be. So I say it's not too surprising that people stick with the standard method when the standard method is so heavily subsidized. But you know, like you know, that aside, I think there's another factor at work, which is you know, the free market is underrated, but it still has a lot of problems. So the, I don't think the free market would switch us over to Esperanto, even if Esperanto really is a better language. Probably is. Right? I mean, or then think about this, like English spelling. How stupid is English spelling? It's a terrible system. Yeah. I think, I think, I think almost anyone, any educated person could figure out with a great way of, uh, of improving English spelling. If you give them an afternoon, it would be much better than the status quo. And yet that's probably never going to happen because we have this lock-in. People don't want to be the first one to switch over to unusual spelling methods. Mm-hmm. And similarly, people don't want to be the first person to switch over to an unusual way of certifying that they are a good worker. 
And this is especially pronounced because, again, you might say, look, there have to be better ways of showing that you're smart, have to be better ways of showing that you're hardworking. But I say, what about that conformity? Do there have to be better ways of showing that you're conformist? When you think about this, I say that I think there is a catch-22 here. If someone comes up with a radical way of showing conformity, the first people in line will not will be nonconformists. Yeah. Right? So it says, I have a bold, incredible new way to show how conformist you are. Just do, let's drop out of school and come and work and do this. So like, I mean, the real conformist will just say, no, thank you, sir. I will mm-hmm. be showing a conformist in the standard way. And so the first people in line will be nonconformists. So you know, you know, there's what you know, there's what economists call an adverse selection problem, where the first people that want to try the alternate system don't have what the system is supposed to signal. And this is my general story about how you can get lock in for any kind of conformist thing, which is if what you want to show is that you're normal, it's really hard to change what counts as being normal. So like like there there's there's an extra barrier to this, and something that the free market is really bad at fixing. Although. Certainly, I think there'd be a lot more innovation if the government would just cut the support the subsidies mm-hmm. from the status quo. So the current system has not passed the market mm-hmm. test. No way, no how. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about the potential of genetic information that all traits and all species ever studied apparently have significant um, heritable components? That's probably true of conformity. Imagine mm-hmm. 10 years from now, social scientists said, yeah, here are the genes that show that you're a conformist. Here are the mm-hmm. genes that show you're diligent. And we already have a bunch of the genes that show that you're smart. Mm-hmm. Would you predict that if we have that, mm-hmm. then there'll be a lot of people at 18 say, oh, look, mm-hmm. take my DNA. We'll do the Gattaca situation. Mm-hmm. Look, I'm a smart, diligent conformist. Look mm-hmm. at my DNA. And they can prove it just through their genes. Mm-hmm. Do you think there'll be a lot of people who then don't go to college and go the genetics route? Yeah, so I guess, well, so an interesting possibility. I actually do have a whole book on this. So my second book, Selfish Reasons Have Had More Kids, uh, has you know is is it basically an introduction to behavioral genetics? So it's one of the things it does. So again, like normally on traits like this, you've got heritability estimates of like forty to sixty percent. So mm-hmm. you know that's the substantial. Uh, and again, you know, the, and like you know, conformity being a personality trait, you'd expect it would be in the, in the same area. But again, you know, there still is this adverse selection problem of. The person who has the gene but wants to do something weird, how worried are you about that guy? Right? So again, you might say, well, given that you've got the gene to go and not mind school that much, why didn't you go? Mm-hmm. Right? In the same way that if there's someone who is smart and hardworking but doesn't go to school right now, we think, so given how easy it would be for, uh, for you given these other traits, it seems like you must be really bad on this, on, on this other trait. But again, this is one where I think you could be part of the, part of the solution anyway. And you know, like so, like you know, maybe 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 it would maybe it would it could be part of it. And of course, in the real world, probably be banned uh, like, yeah. as, soon, as soon as it's being started being used. But um, you know, so like you know, could could this you know chip away at the system you know, at the margin? Um, you know, is it strong enough to actually you know, revolutionize things? Um, you know, like it's one it's one of the best candidates. But I mean, I guess I'm still I see again. I would just say, look, the current system has gone on for about 800 years, so. I mean, I, 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 like someone says it's going to end in my lifetime, I guess it's possible, but I'm skeptical. Well, someone says this, you know, like genetic testing would reduce attendance by five to 10%. That seems very, that seems reasonable. What if it's not really a conformity as in something you have or don't have, like dark hair? What if it's the, the ability to decide to conform? Mm-hmm. So, so it's like, well, yes, I'll, I, I have the ability, if you find it in my interest, to now adopt what this organization cares about. So you can sort of turn it on and off. Mm-hmm. Then it'd be perfectly reasonable for someone to say, "Well, look, I, 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 I'm not a conformist in the sense that I don't feel I have to do it. If there's a better way, I'll do it. But once I get to your company, I'm quite capable of figuring out what the rules are and following them." 
Yeah, so the main problem is anybody can say that, right? So yeah. you can have spent your whole life non-conforming, and then you say, hey, well, it might appear that I've never conformed in my life, but for you, I would, mm-hmm. right? And again, going back to that rule of the best predictor of future, future behavior is past behavior. You know, so, you know, someone said, hey, I've cheated on every spouse I've ever had before you, but you're different. You're special. So, um, you know, of course, people will, I mean, there are there are people who believe that stuff, but I would highly, strongly advise them not to and just to go with the simple reduced form of the future will resemble the past. Mm-hmm. What, what about people in mid-career who don't have college degrees who are told by their companies, oh, we'd love to promote you, but we can't because this position requires a college degree. Now, that the mm-hmm. company, of course, that could be bullshit. They could be like, you're not smart enough. We don't want mm-hmm. to say that. But would you, if the signaling theory is right, isn't it correct to say that you wouldn't expect if you've been working at a company for 10 years for them to care at all about what degree you have? Yeah, so I think, you know, so, you know, first of all, great question. And you know, I'll, I'll agree, like your question has, you know, at, least, at least at first, it's like, yeah, that sounds right. But you can see, I mean, I've actually talked to people in situations like this. So here's the, here's the main thing that a lot of employers will say. You could be really great at a subordinate role and yet be a bad manager. And that's why we require this extra degree, because we think that there's some extra information about your ability that we can't get just from watching you going and doing your lower level job. We think that we need to go we need to go and say that you have to go and get another degree. And if we can do that, then we'll believe you. But otherwise, we just don't want to gamble on you. Mm-hmm. So and, and, and again, remember that there's, you know, there, there's other things to, that, that, that larger companies to worry about, things like nepotism. So, again, like one reason why you might go and require the degree is that. It's a signal that the reason the person's being promoted is that they actually have like have the right stuff rather than they, they just know the right people. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Again, you know, like I mean, I will say at the end at the end, I'm still open to the possibility that uh, that firms are just over over bureaucratized and especially that they're overly worried about getting sued. Because mm-hmm. you know, like you know, oh, you know, like one of the main things that I that I learned in writing the book is that the actual cost of discrimination lawsuits is just much smaller than I think most people would would realize. And these cases are just much easier to defend. You know, it's much easier to defend yourself against these cases, and like it, you know, like it just doesn't cost that much. And just the odds you get sued in the first place often are just much lower than you would think. And so I do I do have a sneaking suspicion that there's a lot of business people who listen who will like listen to their lawyers too much, mm-hmm. and 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 really they would they should actually push their luck more. So I mean here I always think about the Uber model. So I mean I like I, I haven't worked for Uber or anything, but it sure seems to me like at Uber it's a firm where they go to their lawyers and say, here's what we want to do. Is it legal? And then the lawyers say no, and they say, you're fired. That's always the wrong answer. What mm-hmm. we want to hear is yes, and here's how. Mm-hmm. Right? And you know, so I think that, you know, there's a lot of lawyers who just you – know, like, like, you know, like they're, they're supposed to be zealously advancing their client's interests, and instead they go and they, and they just give them this conservative, you know, conservative answer rather than the aggressive answer. The Uber's whole business model is – we are going to aggressively interpret the law uh, you know, to, to say that we're legal and then hope that we get legalized after the fact or that we went in court, right? And, you know, like it's not malpractice for the lawyer to say, all right, here's the best way I can defend you if you're going to do that. And I mean, I do tend to think that there's a lot of business people who are sort of spooked by their legal team. And again, like honestly, if I were running a business, I would just say like if you're, if you're a lawyer and you work for me, do not tell me what I'm doing is illegal ever. <laughs> tell me how to do it lawfully. That's what I want to hear. For that's what I want to hear out of your mouth. Don't I, I hire can-do people here? That is what I'm after. Now, probably, probably because I've just said this, I'll never be a B running company. But um, you know, but I'll whisper this in the ear under the table of, of anyone who's listening and say that's I mean, like 
I want to see people running businesses like this and uh, let me know off the record how it works out for you. Um, you know, I don't need, you don't have to pay me any of the money if you become really rich, but I'm not going to, and I won't indemnify you if, if, you, if it all blows up in your face. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Well, I know colleges have a lot of political power, but I think they've made a mistake in completely aligning themselves with the Democratic Party. So there's a chance now, I think, at some Republican-dominated states that there, there could be reforms that reduce the power of colleges. Can you think of reforms like, for example, one thing is maybe making college three years instead of four. Under your theory, I imagine you would think right. that would be fantastic if that was yeah. the, the new norm. Yeah. And yeah. colleges would, of course, say this will destroy civilization. <laughs> but I think you could get Republicans to be like, wait a minute, yeah, only three years of indoctrination and not four, plus all the parents who save you know, one year of tuition? This is a vote winner. So I can imagine that happening, but here's the thing. Despite a lot of public resentment of of education, I think that they still respect educators more than Republicans, mm-hmm. right? And even out of Republican parents, like they may be griping about the high costs and that kind of thing, but like, like if the you know, if there's a like a Republican government that says we're going to you know, like you know try try like make a big effort to reduce the cost of college in the state, and we think it'll be fine, that we think there won't be much effect on quality. Don't worry about that. I think that's pretty easy to demagogue against them, and I and I think that's not really uh, not really win. Again, the kinds of things that I think are more likely would be things like suing colleges for political discrimination. Mm-hmm. Something like there are a number of states where technically it's illegal to, to discriminate on political views, and there is this whole doctrine of disparate impact where the mere fact that it isn't conscious doesn't mean you're innocent. Mm-hmm. Right? So right, like, right. You know, like in principle, you can sue someone just because they have a set of procedures that lead to a discriminatory result even though they had no intent to discriminate. So I can see, so, I can see stuff like that happening. But um, yeah, you know, like the, the other scenario, I just think that's that's quite unlikely. And again, like you know, so, like certainly for K through twelve, like those you know, teachers there are heavily Democratic too. But I haven't noticed anything other than widespread you know, bipartisan love for for teachers uh, among parents that uh, that I've ever encountered. So I mean, I just think that the respect people have for the occupation of educator is so high that it's you have to be very politically biased. In order to in order to burn all that goodwill, mm-hmm. so I mean, honestly, I'll just say like my usually default is things won't change and like the future will resemble the past, and it's it's depressing, but 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 it works. It's, it's like you're rarely wrong when you say that. Are you planning on having your kids go to college? That... Um, well, so my older sons want to be professors, so and, yeah. and you know, and, I, and I've explained the game <laughs> to them and how look, you're you're seeing the success stories. There's a lot of failure stories and a lot of unpleasant stuff that has to happen. But they've also looked around and say, yeah, but that seems to be true in almost every occupation. Yeah. <laughs> so why not try one where it seems like it ends and you know, like has this really great upside? Um, yeah, so I mean, like you know, I expect all my kids will go to college. If I had a kid that was a C student in high school, then I would discourage them from going to college because despite the signal that I say, you know, like another thing I talk about in, in my book is that there are, you know, while like the typical student who goes uh, profits, but weak students, students that did poorly High school generally do very poorly in college, and I say it turns out it's not a good deal for them overall. Again, the main thing is that college is a good deal for almost everyone, assuming you'll finish, but completion is low and predictable. And again, the best predictor of college completion is how well you did in high school. Mm-hmm. So if you're a C student in high school, then I would not encourage you to go to college. I would encourage you to go and find something else that you like and are good at and, uh, and work on that instead. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like you say, again, like as long as my kids are, are B students or higher, then sure, I'll, I'll encourage them to go. Mm-hmm. 
I know this would never happen, but what if there was a norm or even a law saying if you're too smart, you can't go to college? <laughs> no one with an IQ above 150 is allowed in any university, and we're going to make this known, and we're willing to certify you. Yes, your IQ is 150. You're, we're not letting you go to college. Would that do a lot yeah, of good? Interesting. I feel like there was a, like a, a you know, in the second Twilight Zones uh, series, they had something like that. <laughs> Actually, in that one, it was one where they kill you if your IQ is too high. <laughs> ah, oh. <laughs> and they also drug the kids to make sure that they work at full, at full, full ability. Mm -hmm. um, well, we have Adderall. Yeah, yeah that, so that's an interesting so. idea. So yeah, like if, you know, like if this were widely known, then yeah. So first of all, I predict that a lot of people would just fake having a slightly lower IQ. Mm -hmm. Right. So, Initially, so at some point, though, yeah. if you if you could yeah. get the job, I, mean, well, I say just, it depends upon how how high you put the threshold. Right. Right. But, you know, but you know, the threshold of one hundred and fifty—that's one where we're talking like one out of every fifteen or twenty thousand people would be there. So that's one where I think I think that if you were there, you might just want to shave a few point, IQ points off your test so that you wouldn't be so penalized. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So I think the most likely prediction is just that people would start deliberately pulling their punches on tests and things like that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but like if you could actually go and do this, then you know, then, then my prediction is that uh, for those people, there would be new career tracks that would open where they could just get on the job training. And again, for most of them, it wouldn't make any difference. So it would be a problem for a few. Like if you think that that there's certain areas of college professors where we're really contributing a lot, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, maybe medical researchers, for example, then we'd be losing out there. But yeah, like over overall, they like this would be the this would be a way where you could say if I get my high enough IQ score, then people will no longer assume that I am bad in other ways. And then maybe I can actually get hired at Goldman Sachs right out of high school. Mm -hmm. You don't think right now it's worth it to Goldman Sachs and, and maybe Google to look and find those 18 year olds who could work at their companies? To put well, so the there's effort? good work and then there's woodwork, right? Because you know, basically you have to imagine a scenario where there's a, so there's a kid who's good enough to get into Harvard and would right. want to work at Goldman Sachs, but is willing to go and spit in the face of parents, teachers, and peers and come in and not go to college at all. And I just say that's a very mm. unusual person, so unusual you'd be nervous about them. I don't know if they're getting paid enough. If Goldman Sachs is like saying, look, we'll give you $100,000 a year, I, I don't think most parents would, would parents reject of, that. Parents of kids that are going to Harvard, if, like, if you're a, a parent of a kid who gets into Harvard and someone says you can come and work for – you skipped college and work for 100000 a year – I think most of those parents would flip their lids and they'd say $100,000 that chunk change compared to what you're going to be getting if you actually do well at Harvard, which you're going to because we have every confidence in you. Mm -hmm. And so, again, you know, I mean, I, I could be wrong, but uh, you're like, you know, like I've known Harvard parents and like, you know, these parents, did like, you know, like $100,000 to them, they would just say, that's nothing. No mm -hmm. way is my kid going to settle for being on the B team. My kid belongs on the A team and – we don't need the money. We'll give you a hundred thousand dollars just to stay in school every year. Like I think that's that's what you know, like a typical Harvard parent is a lot more like. So yeah, this this is based upon my impressions rather than any real data because of course it's a weird hypothetical. So there's no research on weird hypotheticals generally. Mm -hmm. I have been told I don't have any data on this, but I've been told that in Silicon Valley it is possible to get really good programming jobs right out of high school. But that's they say that's because you can prove you're a good coder and they generally mm -hmm. don't care how you interact with customers. So right. you can be a super weirdo, but if you can spend 20 minutes doing their coding tests, you know, that's probably yeah, yeah, so, well, so I've asked people in Silicon Valley about this specifically, and you know, usually I frame it this way. I say, so I've heard that you can get hired without a college degree by, say, Google if you win a programming contest. 
Mm-hmm. And they say, yeah, that's right. Like we, we, you know, we, we definitely hire these, you know, these incredible people who just win these programming. You know, these are like global programming contests. And then I said, okay, great, great. Now, how many people work there as programmers because they've won programming contests? And mm-hmm. they're like five. How oh. many people work there because they have prestigious degrees? Thousands. All right. So it's one where you have to be way better just to be, to be in the running. So there is an alternate track, but it's one that is so reserved for hyper talented people that most people like, no matter how hard they work, they would never be eligible for that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's sort of this illusion of, Oh yeah, we're totally open minded. We don't care whether you got a degree or not. Like, well, you don't care if I'm one of the five best people in the world. Well, it's really open minded of you. Yeah. But if I'm only number 1000, then I better go to MIT. Mm-hmm. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. When you look at when you have actual numbers, that changes the analysis. Yeah. yeah I mean, I mean like, like I've also every now and then I have the guy, a guy who runs a business who says, we don't care about degrees at all. And it's like, all right, fine. How many people without degrees have you actually hired? Well, we haven't hired any, but, <laughs> but like there, it's not important anymore. Trust me. And it's like, how like, like you're, you're, you're acting like we should listen to you because you have practical experience, but all your practical experience supports me, not you. Mm-hmm, yeah. So what about the, the possibility of using disparate impact legislation to saying to companies, you can't discriminate against people who didn't go to college unless you can prove what they learned in college is useful to the job? Now, this is funny because this case is already on the books. Oh, it is. Yeah. So actually, and it's called Briggs Electric Power. So mm-hmm. the, the famous case that put IQ tests under suspicion – Mm-hmm. Also, explicitly put diplomas under suspicion too. Mm-hmm. But nothing like come of it. Or... <laughs> but so then what happened? Well, what happened was that um, so two things. I mean, one is that IQ testing is much easier to do than people than, than most people think. And yeah. you know, like, but the other thing is that um, you know, like it doesn't matter what the law says. What matters is enforcement. Again, this is what you know. Like again, if I were hiring lawyers, I'd want them with this attitude. Say, I don't care what the law says. I care what we can get away with, baby. Yeah. All right. So. The main thing is if you try suing someone because they only hire people with college degrees, what will a jury believe? If you can go and put some experts there to tell a jury, look, college teaches vital cognitive skills, blah, 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 blah. If the jury will believe that, then you're allowed to do it. And it doesn't matter what the reality is as long as you can get some experts to testify to that effect and as long as the jury will buy those experts. So as long as we have a national mythology of colleges training the mind and, is, and, and produces all kinds of wonders – then it will be legal, right? And in, and if people uh, people change their minds and say no, this is ridiculous, it's bogus, then it will be illegal. But it's not a matter of changing the law; it's really a matter of changing what juries and judges actually think, mm-hmm. which is way harder. So, if the Trump administration though wanted to reduce the power of colleges, you'd get the Department of Justice suing companies, and there, even even if you yeah. win, you're going to spend a huge amount of litigation. It might just be worth it to not fight. Well, uh, so this is actually something that uh, some of the numbers that I crunch in the book. And what I say is that the expected legal costs are trivial compared to the savings that you get from just hiring skilled workers. Now, are you doing that with being sued by a private defendant or by the Department of Justice? I've got both. I've got both both in there. Again, like assuming basically that the like like the the, the patterns continue. So, again, if you were to radically change what the government does, but to radically change the number of lawsuits the Justice Department brings – you would have to either drop a ton of other legal activity or greatly expand the number of lawyers working there. Well, actually, I mean, here, I mean, but here, here's what I would say. If the federal government wants to go and make a dent in this, they can stop hiring based upon credentials themselves. <laughs> yeah. And you get, you get rid of their own credentialism, which is massive. 
right? You know, totally standard for government jobs that there are rules about rules about uh, the education degrees you have. So let's see if I remember correctly. I think back in 1960, about a third of all government employees in America, this is federal, state, and local, were yeah. high school dropouts. Now it's down to about three percent. Now it's down to about three percent of government employees are high school dropouts, and those are probably quite elderly employees, actually. So, and again, what, what's going on is this rampant credentialism, which is even worse in the public sector than in the private sector. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so, probably, and, and it's easy, and it's that's easy, right? So, like, you don't need to get a bunch of new lawyers just to go and change the hiring requirements for the uh, for the government. So, if they want to go and lead by example, totally within their totally able for them to do so. Mm-hmm. That's right? probably and, 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 and especially you know, like right now, I mean, to me, what's ridiculous is saying like high school dropouts are not qualified for any government job. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. Like you, mm-hmm. I mean, think about the guy at TSA who just hangs out at the exit and makes sure that no one tries to enter the airport through the exit. You can't hire a high school dropout for that job. Come yeah. on. Yeah, I mean, part of that though is probably because the government can't um, hire people based on test scores anymore. That was under the Carter administration, wasn't it? That was declared kind of racist yeah. or. Yeah. Again, you know, so like you. Know, they could go and just come up with a new test, and mm-hmm. uh, and if someone sues them, then they fight that, and that's just one lawsuit. So, and yeah. then and then if they lose, they just make, make up a new test and just stay one step ahead of the law. Again, this is so so someone can always go and play this in court if my character ever becomes an issue. But this, <laughs> you know, you know, like I have a very cynical view about how the law works, and mm-hmm. I know a lot of lawyers, and I and I and I say, look, what I'm telling you is just the way things work. Like, like, it doesn't matter what the law says. What matters is what you can get away with. And if you just keep changing what you're doing, you can keep getting away with stuff. And why not? If you really want to do it aggressively. Mm-hmm. Though what, what the Department of Justice could do is use some game theory where they go to one company and they say, look, we're just going to devote a ridiculous amount of resources mm-hmm. to crushing you if you don't comply. And the company's like, all right, well, I'll comply. Then the mm-hmm. Department of Justice goes to the next company. Yeah. And they keep doing this. And yeah. I mean, I say, you know, that works on a homework problem in the real world. It just doesn't work because... <laughs> Eventually, there's someone who's like tape recording the conversation and then leaks into the media or whatever, and then you look really bad. And, and you know, like you know, government isn't about getting results; they're about looking good. So, yeah. like, you know, they don't you know, like you know, they don't care whether things really improve very much. They care about whether people whether they are popular and whether they have a claim. Mm-hmm. And you know, so you know, again, see, see my first book, uh, Myth of the Rational Voter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you think there's much chance that online education could radically reduce the cost of college? Well, I mean, I'd say in a sense it already did because if you want to learn anything, you can do it for free from your computer. The main thing that online education does not seem to be helping is getting getting people credible credentials to get them jobs at a lower cost. Yeah. And yeah, so there I'm just not optimistic. I'd say like all the evidence is that online education primarily competes with blogs and other kinds of edutainment. <laughs> it doesn't really com- it doesn't really compete with traditional colleges. You know, you know, like you can't get a job by saying, "Hey, I listen to 20 podcasts. Let's talk about it, man." Right, that's not that's not going to get your foot in the door. Like, it's, you know, like these traditional stodgy credentials are still uh, still the gatekeepers for status in our society, and I don't see much sign that online education has changed that. Uh, so, again, I think there is this adverse selection problem where the first people in line to do it the the unconventional way, there's a stigma against them. So, yeah, I mean, I had a colleague who ten years ago was worried that online education would put us all out of business. And I just said, eh, I just don't worry about it. Relax. And, no, I'm really worried. And I'm like, well, what, what are you going to say in eight years when your son's going to college? And he says, I want to do online. He's like, no son of mine is going to do online education. I say, exactly. Mm-hmm. And because you say that, because tons of other parents of talented kids are going to say that, it's going to remain an easy way out, which could be a, a useful route for a lot of people. 
and yet will not undermine the system to any noticeable way. So uh, that's my my general you know, pessimistic view about things. But you know, I mean, when you say ten years ago there were a lot of people making big predictions about MOOCs and online education, you know, you know being like Napster for the record industry and like like you know, not only the, you know, so and I, by the way I, I I did a bet back then and I am crushing it in the bet because I'm going to I actually made a bet that. The fraction of, I believe, 18 to 24 year old high school dropouts that are enrolled in four year colleges would fall no more than 10 percent, mm-hmm. uh, or like, like over the or like, like by uh, over the course of 10 years. And actually, it's, uh, actually that share is now higher than it was at the beginning of the bet. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I guess things could turn around in the last couple of years, but I, everything looks everything looks like clear sailing as far as I can tell. All right. Yeah. So this has been great, but I should move on now. Okay, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with yeah, me, Brian. Yeah, sure, sure thing. And you know, if you're ever in Fairfax, I'd be delighted to set up a GMU Bloggers Lunch for you. So just oh. let me know if you're in town. Yo, thank you very much. I appreciate that. All right, sure thing. Okay, all right. Okay, all right, great talking to you. Yep, goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Future Strategist with James Miller. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving me a favorable ranking wherever you listen to your podcasts. And also please consider joining my Facebook group, which is just called Future Strategist, or following me on Twitter, where I am Jim D. Miller. Goodbye.